Hi, I'm Ed Jakes, Marketing Executive at Amber and VGA, and you are listening to the Ambition Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Stephen DeSosa, Senior Client Partner at Corner Ferry. We will learn about Stephen's career journey so far and how that's led him to publish his new book, New Beginning. Can you tell me a little about yourself and your career? Yeah, thanks, Ed. It's, uh, it's unusual when I describe uh, my career because it didn't really follow a traditional path. I remember the first role I actually did was a startup where it was uh, at university. I trained in NLP and I did uh, my practitioner and a master practitioner. And I was invited by the, the trainer at the time to join him in a small startup. And uh, that's now become the NLP Academy. So training thousands of people in understanding neurolinguistic programming and how it applies to training and development. But that was really my first inklings. It was doing everything from stamping envelopes at the time before email was <laughs> quite common to doing sales, to helping a burgeoning startup. And then I uh, set up my own company. It was really to help students achieve uh, first-class degrees. And that was a uh, part of their work. It was called Students First. And I ended up going from then into human resources. So my first real role within a corporation was uh, for Radisson Edwardian Hotels, where I had a HR function uh, at the group level, looking after recruitment and then helping more broad as a HR manager. I ended up uh, leaving that after a couple of years. Uh, unfortunately, I caught tuberculosis, which was a dramatic thing at the time. I think I was around 24 years old. And uh, I gave up work and I literally spent some time reflecting on my on my job and uh, how I wanted to work. And I came back to the workforce working part-time and I did uh, business development and I directed a charity that I was sponsored as a student on. It was called the Winter Fellowship and it was to encourage uh, young people from diverse minority communities in Britain to help them become senior, senior managers. So I was on that programme sponsored by the Home Office and I worked in the prison service so went back to help that organisation grow, and it's still going many years later with alumni across the private and the public sector. I ended up uh, going to Indonesia, doing voluntary work, recruited from there to join Abbey Bank. Uh, that became Bank Santander Bank, and where I was head of diversity for the bank in the UK and Ireland. And then I joined Merrill Lynch, an investment bank, where I was looking at diversity on a regional basis, but then head of diversity for the wealth management business for that organization. And since 2009 and the crisis hit, I've really been a mixture of being self-employed, so teaching, speaking, consulting, and also going into employment and and, uh, doing that too. So I've had roles at the Financial Times, i.e. Corporate Learning Alliance, which is now called Headspring, which is doing executive development. But I've also done three years more recently as a global head of leadership for PMI, Philip Morris International, helping that company in its transformation away from combustible cigarettes to becoming a smoke-free and uh, beyond a nicotine company. So it's very diverse. And if I was to pick some uh, threads, I would say the main thing is if I'm in a company too long, it's easy to become myopic. You think that's your life and you think that's how organizations work. And if I'm outside too long, then I can lose touch with organizational realities and uh, what is the day-to-day life like for somebody in an organization. So what I tend to do is be on the edge. 
and I tend to go in and out organizations. And I think that gives me a different perspective and a fresh perspective. I've also tended not to stay within one domain. So you can see I've worked in is executive development within a company, within consulting, different kinds of roles that perhaps allow me to build uh, bridges and look for connections rather than, let's say, following a singular path or singular approach, whether that's consulting or whether that's being internal, et cetera. So I think bringing them together, I think, has been important to me and uh, plays to some of my values around diversity, uh, inclusion, but also autonomy and uh, making a difference. So I hope that <laughs> just gives you a general sense of the diversity of things I've done. Thank you for that answer, Stephen. Um, you've had a, a really interesting career journey so far. You recently wrote Not Being. Can you tell me about this book and the key themes discussed within it? Yeah, thank you, Ed. Not Being is uh, the completion of the trilogy. So in put into context, uh, the first book of the trilogy was called Not Knowing. And uh, this came really from my own struggles with the unknown. So I remember walking down Seven Sisters tube station and thinking, I want to write a book that's meaningful to me. Uh, but I don't know what it is. You know, and, but then I thought not knowing isn't the same as uncertainty. And it's something that I really struggle with. So, for example, my therapist at the time or coach used to say to me, Stephen, whenever you have decisions to make, you always make polarizing. You always make, should I do this or should I do this? And I get caught up in knots. Yet the unknown isn't um, necessarily a place that we need to get caught up in knots with. So, for example, if you have children uh, or when we were children at Christmas or Eid or Diwali, something was wrapped up a present, for example, or birthday. You didn't feel uncertain what was in the present. You felt curious, full of wonder, possibility. And in the same way, I was curious about who are the people that relate to the unknown, not as a place of uncertainty, but as a space of possibility and opportunity. So the first book was exploring and interviewing many people from entrepreneurs, scientists, adventurers, artists, who saw the unknown and as a place of possibility and opportunity, and really uh, sought to give a different viewpoint so, and really practical tools in order to, to go into the unknown. It wasn't about adding or uh, almost like uh, additional things. It was almost like what we call negative capabilities. And this is more like unlearning what we habitually do. So negative capabilities is a phrase from the poet Keats. He wrote to his brothers, George and Thomas, and he defined a negative capability as the ability to be mystery, uncertainty and doubt without irritable reaching up to fact and reason. So we offered four main uh, principles, really, for uh, managers or leaders to help them deal with the unknown. And uh, that book uh, won the Chartered Management Institute's uh, Management Book of the Year in the UK. We followed that up with looking at not doing, which was really an antidote to overdoing in society and the pressure to always push or to pull. Uh, you can hear it in the almost like the hustle culture that we have. And so not being is the final book. So if you can think about it like a trilogy of what leaders know, do and be, offering a, an alternative to the conventional narrative. So really it's an unconventional success. And the third one, not being, that you asked is really around questioning the idea that identity is somebody who's atomized, disconnected, 
and that we need to protect, defend, extend, consume. And we get caught up in an endless cycle of almost like I would say destination addiction and in which we feel more disconnected and fragmented than ever. And in the book, we relate this to uh, instances as how it impacts on uh, race, how it impacts on climate change, how it impacts on consumerism, feelings of loneliness, uh, disconnection, and also what happens in our lives, though, when our narrative about who we are is challenged. So when something happens like COVID, for example, it's on the grander scale, but each of us has things happen in our lives where things fall apart, you know, then, then we're not able to continue in exactly the same way we did before. And how can we use that as an opportunity to rethink about who we are, but with a much wider lens, recognizing our interconnection, not only with each other, but with nature as well. So the book offers principles similar to the negative capabilities, what we call them pointers, that help people to think about how they might live with a different identity that's less uh, disconnected and more intimately feeling a sense of belonging and connection. Yeah, I think the trilogy of the books that, you, that you've written are very poignant, especially um, with what's happened recently with the pandemic. Um, people have had time, they've reflected upon themselves and their situation and how their lives have been generally, but as well as their careers and what people really want to do and how they fit into society. So I think that this time, this day and age, I think the books are very, very important for for what's, what's been happening recently, as well as um, any time in someone's life. So yeah, thank you for that answer. The book centres on identity and transformation as key themes. I wanted to ask about a key transformation in your life, going from training to be a priest to becoming vice president of an investment bank, all before the age of 30. Can you tell me more about this? Yeah, um, firstly, to frame it that there's you know thousands of people who are vice presidents in the festival banks. <laughs> so it's like a title that's quite common, uh, Ed. So, you know, it's not something to be uh, lauded. So it's like, uh, you know, you hear there's a, I think it was... David Brooks, who wrote a lovely book around character, but he also did one on the second mountain. He describes how we describe our careers as, you know, eulogies, or like CVs that are more like, uh, that are more eulogies that are more like CVs, just our accomplishments and what we've done. So what I would say is the first part of my career, and uh, you, you mentioned it was really uh, exploring a, a vocation. And in my case, it was a religious vocation and was looking at how can I uh, live my life as an expression of uh, my values and my beliefs. So in this case, it meant living in a community with other young people. And it meant working as a youth uh, leader in an Alzheimer's disease unit as well. And then uh, having experiences from teaching in uh, primary school in Glasgow, in the East End of Glasgow, to working in a homeless shelter in Westminster, to a deaf centre, a mental prison. And it was a period of two years. And I have to say that it wasn't, um, the religious vocation wasn't for me. Like, I didn't feel like that was what I was being called to do. But I think spending that time and having that exposure to different people in different contexts was perhaps the most valuable education I could have and has given me more learning probably than I would have got uh, through many years of formal education. So I, I, I do think the fastest way possibly to grow is 
is when we do and when we learn through things like voluntary work, for example, and it's really overlooked. So we tend to invest in our formal learning, in our masters or MBAs, etc., which are useful. And how can we complement that and augment it with work that takes us into meeting with different people and in challenging circumstances that we perhaps wouldn't have been exposed to. So for me, leaving that was like not like leaving a job. It was more like leaving a vocation or at least uh, finding a different expression, I think, of that same vocation. So in a way, I didn't feel that was for me. I feel called to serve through my writing, through my speaking, through my teaching. And in a, in a way that if we look back on our lives, remember, regardless of our careers and where we are now, you know, what is the, the red thread that we can all see if we look? And uh, there's a beautiful book called by an educator called Parker Palmer, and the title is Let Your Life Speak. So if your life was speaking, you know, what would it be saying? You know, rather than trying to predict, maybe it's listening. What is What do we see as the threads? What do we see as the, the currents, really, that have run through our career stories? And uh, can we pay attention to those? So that was a, an early part, and I would say a figural part of um, my development. Not being presents stories and quotes from inspirational people in many different walks of life. I was wondering if there was any particular quote or story which stayed with you and inspires you now. Yeah, it's interesting about quotes. Uh, what uh, tended to happen is in not being, I stayed away from you know, personal development quotes and you know the things that you often see in books from like Zig Ziglar and like uh, Brian Tracy and others notable in the personal development field. And instead, I went to literature. And I think, you know, as, as I get older, there's more truth in poetry and literature, that, literature than there is in nonfiction. And uh, often these are timeless and they, that can help. So I, I don't know if there's a, a specific quote, but there's, uh, there's one by William Tempest, and he talks about we can't breathe. And uh, it's at the very beginning of the book. And I, I like that as a powerful metaphor, really, for what was happening in the Black Lives Matter movement and also within the Ameri- the fires, you know, the wildfires in California. We seem to have described in a very eloquent way uh, how we can't breathe was a metaphor for, yes, not breathing because of what was happening culturally, socially, but also environmentally as a powerful, uh, powerful metaphor. Uh, the story that stays with me most in, in the book is the one that starts the book, and it's from a movie on Netflix called My Octopus Teacher, which follows a film a filmographer who's really feeling disconnected and depressed and alienated from his family and in his life. And uh, he goes out to the, to the almost like the ocean every day, and he encounters an octopus, and he decides to visit her every day for one year. And the film charts how that transforms him and transforms his life. It's a very moving um, movie that looks at this transition from disconnection to feeling alive again and the role that our exposure to nature can play in our exposure to yeah, relationship rather than the abstract, but to in this case, it was his relationship with observing Optimus. But it was extremely uh, poignant and is serving as also as a metaphor for how, how do we reconnect and how do we feel uh, part of nature again, that we're not so disconnected. And 
the importance of that, particularly in the world where when we're communicating much more from our desks or from our screens. How do we, you know, connect with the world, the wild again, and uh, that aliveness that we feel when we are in in the natural environment? And yeah, so this was a powerful story that stood out uh, from a movie. One that stood out mostly from uh, an individual was a story of uh, actually somebody from the Philippines. Uh, Ed, I know your family origin from from there. Or one side, mother, I think mother's side. And uh, this was a, a young couple that had a global career. The, the, the woman was in Unilever, done several senior roles, and the husband was in a, in a brewery company. But they decided to go back to the Philippines. And, uh, you know, the husband gave up uh, his career for his wife. And it was like you would expect it the other way. But he brought up a couple of two or three children. And uh, he describes how they went back and they start. They decided to make their life about contribution. So they started a sunflower farm called Sunshine Farm Philippines, where they employed people with disabilities. I think it was over 50 and uh, really a, a, an amazing project. They began offering free training and development for the medics in the country uh, that couldn't afford necessarily the corporate kind of training, but enabled them and empowered them with leadership development skills. And for me, this was illustrative of something in the book about the last principle of the book is called Give Yourself Away. This idea about in the first half of our lives, we're about climbing the career ladder. You know, Jung uses the metaphor of putting up the scaffolding. But in the second half of our lives, it's less about uh, being somebody. It's more around taking down the scaffolding and uh, living a life with a d- deeper meaning and purpose. And so I suggest we don't need to wait till the second half of life in order to do this. And that was a beautiful story of how you know a couple really, really invested in that, made tough decisions but that are really living a fulfilled life in contribution and they do feel rich in in terms of meaning and and purpose. So this story uh, stood out to me a lot. Well, that sounds uh, amazing. It's definitely something I will have to uh, look further into. So thank you for that. I recommend you read the book, Ed. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Maybe after I'll send it to you, okay? Great. That That would be very much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. In the book... You use several anecdotes. Did you learn anything significant about yourself in share in the sharing of these? I think we all learn through story, and one of the things I tried to do in the book is not to get, yes to give some theory, to ground it in research. So we often quote some academic research for each of the points that we make, but the main thing is we try to get a real story about what does it mean when we live uh, that principle or live that idea, and. That's the way I learn. You know, I don't learn through advice. I don't because, you know, your advice is not applicable because our contexts are different. So in all of the books that are written, I've I've never done tips or never done, you know, do these five things and you will achieve these five things. But it's more around stories that that can move something in, in an individual that I may never know. So we can read the same book, for example, but I will pick up something very different and that will influence me than you might. But instead, I offer like uh, questions to live with or experiments to try. So some questions we don't ask answer once, you know. So for example, just take the world is my purpose. 
you know, you can ask that question every day of your life or at different stages of your life and your answers will change as you have evolved, evolved and as you have changed. And the same way with uh, experiments to try rather than proposing, you know, this is what you could do and this is the action plan. Uh, little experiments can sometimes give you much more data and that will help you change uh, what you what you do. So uh, a lovely metaphor I like is in the book, uh, not knowing is of Trojan mice. So rather than doing a big experiment like a Trojan horse, for example, which might have big implications and consequences, what about doing a series of small experiments? Imagine like releasing little mice. So there's no big unintended consequence, but that you can see what works, you know, what has been useful, and then you can build on that further. Stories are vital. I think they they move, they touch, they inspire us. And uh, what I've learned is to maybe tell more stories, you know, to to be less of a of a person that just gives propositional facts and maybe just shares uh, stories. You find out from most traditions, you know, they're filled with parables or they're filled with myths or they're filled with stories. And I think that's perhaps the most powerful way that we can uh, communicate. This book is not perhaps your average business book, with it being intermingled with poetry and personal stories. When you were writing the book, who did you have in mind for reading it? That's a good question. What I wanted to do was to make it applicable to everybody, not just to those in the world of uh, leadership, but it, it speaks to everyone because we all struggle with the unknown. We all struggle with overaction. We all have feelings of disconnection. So the the book is uh, specifically written uh, for those in the world of work and those in management leadership. It's a leadership book but uh, it can be applicable to all areas of life because we can't separate uh, who we are as in the workplace from who we are outside. We bring uh, bring all our qualities to them. What I tried to do was to make their book an aesthetic experience. Uh, if you open the book, there's a, there's a lot of art images and uh, lots of uh, illustrations, and they were done by uh, uh, an artist from Venezuela, uh, living in Berlin. And uh, the idea behind it was not to just uh, give people words, but to recognise as well that aesthetics and uh, image convey, you know, much more truths than prose as well. And uh, and some of those images, you know, struck people and stayed with them much more than the text, which they may forget. Uh, I don't know, is it um, the phrase, you know, a picture is worth a thousand uh, words and, you know, experience is worth a thousand pictures. But in the absence of experience, what we try to do is give people both the words and the images. And uh, the book is more that kind of aesthetic experience rather than just text on the page. So if you look at the the almost like the side of not knowing, if you flick the book, the actual pages go from darkness to light. And it's like you'll find it darker on the on the edges, and it's imperceptible, but un, at least uh, unless you know. But there's a, there's a sense that you know there's a, some mystery in the book as well that allows the reader to delve into and to unravel. So trying to create more of that uh, experience for the, the reader rather than just a traditional textbook or a nonfiction book. The book suggests that to find purpose and drive, we need to think about the collective instead of the individual. Can you tell me more about this theory? Yeah, I think it's both. You know, I think uh, I think we do live in a hyper individual culture. 
And uh, we tend to focus on ourselves and we tend to focus on our goals and uh, achieving our own happiness. And the paradox is that we can achieve that only when we start to pretend to the whole. And we've seen this in just simple examples like the vaccine, for example, with COVID. And, you know, we can vaccinate our own countries but unless we have vaccination programs for countries without vaccines. It's likely that there will be more variants and that it will spread. So this idea that we can be sufficient and by looking only after ourselves, I think, is is incomplete. So it's not to say that we shouldn't have our own uh, ambitions and our own identity. And of course, this is super important, but we just need to balance that because we're discovering that we're not necessarily happy. We're more fragmented, disconnected, lonely. We don't feel content. And uh, also because there are severe existential issues such as climate, such as uh, impacting on social uh, mobility, that we can't achieve uh, what we need to as a society unless we move beyond only the focus on individual uh, gain. So the book is uh, presenting and not diminishing the individual, but expanding the individual. So it's looking at uh, recognizing our identity and reconceiving that to be bigger and bolder than we thought. So a simple example is that if we think of ourselves as our bodies, you know, there's 37 trillion uh, cells there in the body, but most of them are not even human. Most of them are bacteria. There are other life forms. And yet we think that's us. And, you know, these can even direct our moods and they can even direct our actions. So it's quite interesting to see, you know, we're literally walking ecosystems we're made up of atoms that have been recycled throughout the millennia, you know, not only within this galaxy, but within many others. So neuroscience, ecology have all caught up with this. So Neil Seth, for example, uh, he's, a he's a psychologist at University of Sussex, and uh, he runs a, a lab there that wrote a recent book called Being, Being You. You know, he challenges this idea of this separate sense of uh, self. It's, it's a story that allows us to operate uh, effectively. We need that, but it's still, uh, we still, it's not a fixed identity like this a pilot in the back of our heads that we have an illusion of that gives us that separation. Or the, an ecologist called Tom Oliver, I really recommend to listeners. He wrote a book called The Self-Delusion, and uh, he looks at the ecology of what makes up a human uh, body and, uh, again, busting many of these myths about our, our ability to be separate to our natural environment or autonomous in that way. So I think uh, part of it is how do we bring that thinking into the world of management? How do we bring that thinking into the world of uh, leadership so we go beyond, you know, this uh, narrow self-interest to this broader. Uh, but I think it starts with the individual, recognising our own uh, our own interdependence and our own uh, less of this uh, uh, fragmented and uh, separate individual. Yeah, that is a very interesting perspective on like individualism and the fact that you mentioned ourselves as ecosystems and we're made up of um, many different things that aren't as we would perceived to be ourselves so yeah so thank you for sharing that a very um a very interesting answer you have taught at several business schools how do you think business schools should be creating better leaders for the future uh, i think uh, business schools are evolving you know many of them are now interdisciplinary 
so they don't just look at a separate uh, like marketing class or but still many are you know they're still uh, having different rather than tackling problems from various angles they're still schooled in their old uh, departments in all ways but I think more interdisciplinary uh, schools are emerging I know there's it's not a business school but there's the London Interdisciplinary School that looks at different elements such as and combining thinking so I think that's one growth area I think many schools have moved in the times with uh, not being shy of technology, but adapting it and uh, almost like operating and allowing students to be in the classroom and not be in the classroom, but still have the similar uh, powerful experience. I think this is something uh, positive. What I uh, probably will argue from my books is more the sense of how do you go beyond the transactional, you know, in terms of achieving uh, objectives to developing some of these capacities that, you know, exploring, not knowing, not doing, not being, that I think uh, will be uh, something that will give students the edge or business leaders the edge in the future. And so whether it's dealing with paradox, being able to have a different relationship with the unknown and not pushing, pulling, working with systems and with context and being able to explore their identity, I don't know if enough uh, work is being done on these in schools. Now, some are, but often they're electives or they're short-lived. But where they are in some schools, they're, they're increasingly very popular. So, for example, in Stanford, you know, classes on leadership are extremely popular. In Wharton, I think Adam Grant's classes are there. He's been voted the, the top professor the last several years. So I think uh, there is an appetite, and I think uh, schools can go uh, much deeper in, in these directions. How can leaders manage their teams through times of change, for example, in the current uncertainty regarding the new normal? Yeah, I think uh, one is by just suspending their assumptions and beliefs and asking, you know, what do you need? So some people want to be, you know, back in the office, they got a lot of energy from their colleagues, their peers. They struggle working from the dining table, maybe with not enough space. Yeah, some people they would they they want to be at home. You know, others might not want the commute. So it's really seeing that there's no one size fits all. Individuals have different uh, needs. Another is creating enough uh, safety for the we call psychological safety, but enough safety and trust for somebody to be able to share where, where they are and what their troubles are. So it's by role modeling, really. So a lot of emphasis now is on uh, resilience, health and well-being. But if a manager is never uh, sharing any vulnerability and always pushing and always uh, sending emails at crazy out, it doesn't send the right signals, even if they say that uh, I, I care, but their behaviour is sending another message that it's not okay to to be struggling. It's not okay to be uh, finding it difficult to to work in this new way. I think uh, bringing people together when you can is still critically important. So the theories to be with uh, with disparate teams, bring them together at the beginning, and then they can work well uh, dispersed. But when a team has been dispersed for so long, I think we need to bring touch points almost to encourage people to connect again in person. And uh, I think these will prove vital, like almost like islands 
where people can reconnect, rejuvenate, uh, build those relationships and avoid almost like the cognitive dissonance that Zoom causes. You know, you can see, but you can't touch, can't really feel. And uh, so I think it would be more vital for leaders to start to build in uh, these touch points at regular intervals, even if the cadence is that we work from home most of the time, but we still have have those. So these are some, I think the biggest thing from uh, book not knowing is the last point is around empathy and compassion. There's a beautiful video listeners can find on YouTube. It's called Empathy by the Cleveland Hospital. And they did a video to help increase their almost like the empathy that patients would have for doctors, but also that doctors might have and uh, medical staff might have for their patients. And the the, the video, it's only a short one, voices what's going on in people's lives from, from every angle. And it's a beautiful one to show, you know, there's actually much more that each of us is carrying that we'll, we'll never be aware of. And uh, everybody has their own burden, as it were, or their own joys and their own sorrows. But how do we show more empathy and compassion? And I think part of that is starting with uh, showing that to ourselves. We tend to be very critical. I should be achieving more, or I could be doing this, or... And how do we show ourselves this empathy as well as to others? So I think this is a, a critical skill as well that leaders will need. Amazing. Thank you, Stephen. Um, yeah, thank you for all the, the great insight that you've just shared on this podcast. Um, it's It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you very much, Ed. Uh, delighted to, to speak and I hope uh, if listeners want to find out more, they can really dive into the trilogy and uh, gives them much more, I think, more guidance and questions and experiments that they can try in their own lives and in, with, in their working environment as well. Thank you so much to Stephen for being our guest on the podcast today. For more thought leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and be sure to tune into the next episode of the Ambition Podcast.